I asked the police car where the free campground is in this town and he just stared at me and pointed to the car. I thought like, oh, what's going to happen now? And then he drove me with the police car around town. Oh, there's the bakery and there's the mosque and there's the campground and there's fresh water and there you may have a shower. And Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Very, very exciting guest today, who I found on Facebook. I was in a, I'm in a group on Facebook called, I think it's called Women Over 50 Who Travel Solo or something. And I saw this lady who wrote in a, in a comment that she traveled by bicycle from Switzerland to Thailand. And I thought I need to get in touch with this woman. And I sent her a Facebook request and she replied. And then I realized when I started talking to her, how much more she has done. And we're going to find out now how much more she has done. But first, let me welcome Barbara Sherton Life to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's very nice you asked me. I'm pleased. Thank you. Yes, I want you to share because I started stalking you. Once I found you, I started finding all the stuff. I actually found your interview that you gave on a Swiss radio station, um, DRS3 uh, and so on. So I already know a lot about you, but I want the people who are listening to us. Um, I want them to know as well what you do. Now, tell me, you are a Swiss lady who has a quite a responsible job. I'm not 100% sure. Are you a doctor or are you a, a helping doctor? What exactly is it that you do by profession? I'm a nurse anesthesiologist. So in, in, in my profession, I have the same liability as a doctor, but only only on a, on a few or, or small spectrum of, yeah. So you put, people to, you put people to sleep. Yes, that's what I do. And you make and... sure they sleep well. I hope. I always induce the anesthesia with a suggestion, which um, I once did a hypnosis course. So I always ask them, what do you like more, the sea or the mountains? And if they say both, I always put them in the Pyrenees. So they're on a mountain and look down on the sea and I let them sleep with uh, all the feelings, the smell and the view and the touch and the warmth. And I usually have patients which wake up and say, oh, no, I, I had such a nice dream. Why did I wake up? Why is it all already over? So, yeah. Wow. I think that is amazing. I mean, how many anesthesiologists do that? So and, and you are absolutely right. The subconscious mind never sleeps. So when you put something into their mind, into their subconscious, they can process it while, you know, the doctor, I don't know, takes something out or puts something in or whatever they do. Yeah. Well, propofol, the medication which people sleep with, also has the ability to do that a little bit. To make good sleep, uh, dreams while sleeping, but I realized um, with a to fall asleep with a suggestion even helps more. And I like that the people are not scared and are confident everything is going to go be alright, and they have a nice smell and the warm wind on the skin and uh, yeah, beautiful. And you know what? I mean, we should all do that before we go to sleep. We should do that every night with, you know, go to sleep with good thoughts. Well, since 12 years, I don't look any more news, mm -hmm. not on the newspaper, in TV or on the radio. 
And that's so good because I concentrate on the good things. I know there are bad things, but the good things should wait more. <laughs> yes, and you can't change most of the bad things. You can just change the way you look at them or you not look at them yeah. at all. Now tell me, Barbara, how did all this start, this crazy traveling? Okay. <laughs> well, my last travel started with a crisis in my life. Um, one of my daughters lived uh, in a Buddhist monastery close to Sydney, Australia. My other daughter, she lived in Barcelona, Spain. And I was all by myself in Switzerland. And one morning I realized, hmm, I'm right in this position I ever dreamed of. I was uh, a teacher. I worked with uh, children with high abilities. And I didn't like to go to work. I didn't like to go to work as much as I went to work when I was a nurse anesthesiologist. So I thought either I'm going to change my life or I'm going to have a sickness which can't be cured, like, you know, to go out of my life. So I made a whole list of things. I'm proud of in my life, which I did like very much. And almost on top of that list was once a bicycle tour from Geneva, Switzerland to the Spanish um, French border years ago. So I thought, okay, I could give up all my belongings and start cycling. I didn't have any plans. So I get rid of almost of my whole stuff and I started to cycle first in Europe, in Morocco, and then I went to Australia to see my daughter in the Buddhist monastery, which was at this time in Namdere. And I cycled north and south island of New Zealand because I had to go out after three months from Australia, went back. Then my sister said, You can you can look after your cat which was 17 and a half years old at this time, and come back to Switzerland, go back to work. But I was not ready. I didn't know what to do with the rest of my life. So I bought the car and then started traveling around Europe with my old cat. She enjoyed it very much. So I was a housekeeper in Spain, France, and Belgium for about six months. And then my cat, in the age of eight and a half years, passed away in Belgium. And so I sold my car and I thought, well, I'm going to do a new tour now. This this time I'm going to go far. So I started my bicycle journey in the Italian part of Switzerland, in the Tessin, and rode down Italy, took the ferry over to Greece, traveled through Greece, Turkey. Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, China, Laos. And when I was in northern Laos, my daughter, which lived in Australia, said, well, I'm going to go back to Europe. I want to study. Then I thought, okay, then I will end up in Bangkok, which uh, the possibility to fly out are great. So, and on this journey, I found the meaning of life, what I want to do in my life. And that was the most important thing. 
That's a lot. We have to go back to a lot of the things that you just said because uh, there's a lot to digest. That's like your your that that's a big adventure in a nutshell. I want to go back to one thing, one question. You wrote a list of the things that you are proud of. And I think that's something that we should all do once in a while, you know, and find out that because that's how we find out our purpose. Yeah, it could be. It was it was like a parachute for me uh, because I fulfilled every my wishes in my life. And if you run out of wishes, what's the, the meaning of life? Yeah. You lose it because yeah. there's nothing to dream of or to mm-hmm. to reach or whatever. And that makes life very hard. Yeah. So, yeah. That yeah, was and my I think we should it. never stop wishing things. I think you had reached a point where you didn't have anything to wish and you knew deep down that's not a good moment. That's not a good position to be in. You wanted to have wishes again and dreams and you started creating them and making them. But another question that I wrote down here is, how did your daughter end up in a, was it her, did, did she like, had she this wish to go to be a Buddhist uh, um do you none. call a nun? Yes, I was just going to say, what do you call a female monk? A nun. Yeah. Because she must you, she must have had quite an interesting upbringing by an interesting mother to have the desire to do something like that. Yeah. Well, when she was four years old, she wished, she wished for her birthday a pan flute. <laughs> and when she was seven, she started to play the violin. And when she was in fourth grade, she started to play the piano and she wanted to do more and more music because her frustration she had in her school history, she, how can I say, her relief was the music. So she wrote the piece for, I guess it was violin, viola, cello or something. And then I went to the conservatory of music with her and asked the chief, what can I do for her? So he said that this piece she wrote is perfect. So she started to have lesson in composition and she always wanted to become a film music composer. And she almost reached that goal, but with the school she did, they went once, I think it was a weekend in a Buddhist monastery and it just pulled her in. Mm. So she left um, the school, yeah, to become a Buddhist nun, and that's what she did. So I think she was also looking for the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And after five years being a nun, she said, well, I want to study. And um, yeah, that's what she did. What did she study? She studied medicine. That's amazing. That is so amazing. But that also shows me that young people need to take their time until they decide what to study. I think she she that that's a perfect she had time to think what she really, really wants, because at the age of 18, 19, they have to decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And they yeah. are most of the time not ready to know. They don't know. And I think yeah. they should also have the courage to change when they start something and they realize that it's not what they wanted. They should change. Yeah, well, I support that because for myself, I have four professions, four certificates. And um, who else would um, appreciate what she did than me 
which I really couldn't make up my mind what to do in my life. So I always switched around a little bit. But that's totally fine. Look at you. I mean, all the stuff that you've done, you don't have to do or nobody has to do the same thing all their lives. I think it's a a stereotype idea that we have to start a profession at the age of 20 and do it until we're 63 or five. And then, you know, and then I don't know, it's just not not everybody is the same. You're doing the you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in the age of like around 50, 50, uh, 45, they go into a change of their life and they start a new new studies or looking for other opportunities. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to do that, that's fine. If somebody doesn't want to do it, that's fine too. Everybody should make themselves happy. What else is, is the sense of being alive? It's called respect. It's called respect for what other people do, I think. And if we had more mutual mutual respect in the world, we would have less problems. Yeah. So let's go on that tour. I mean, I'm not going to talk about the trip with the cat and, you know, you went to within Europe. That is all exciting. But I want to go on that bicycle tour. So Italy, down Italy. Okay, I can... That's okay. I can live with that. That's and many people do that. It's it's. Uh, but another question before we go into it: Did you always like to ride a bike? Were you a are you a, a bicycle person? Yeah, because raising my child as a single mother, I didn't have a lot of money, so I rode my bike to save money. I became a vegetarian because meat was just too expensive, and. Uh, to say I'm a vegetarian is much easier than to say I don't have enough money to buy f- meat. Okay. And yeah, riding my bicycle, that's because for me, the bicycle is the right speed. On a car, I would be too fast and I would block myself off if I see something beautiful to stop and watch at it. And to walk, it's some kind of slow, but the bicycle is just the right speed. Wow, that's amazing. And I agree with you because sometimes when you're in a car and you see something beautiful, you can't stop because there is no place to pull out, pull out, pull over. But with a bicycle, you can stop where, wherever you are, whenever you are. Never yeah. stop. And, and when you're riding in a car, it's 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 just a thought. When you see, oh, there was a deer and the, the thought goes like three, four seconds, and maybe later on, oh, I saw a deer, but that's it. But when I'm riding a bicycle, I just stop and stay for five or ten minutes, and I can see the deer and feel the wind of, on my skin and smell the surrounding. Yeah, and it's just enjoy the moment. And using your, all your senses. Yeah. It's including all the senses. Yes. Now, Italy, you went to Greece. Again, lots of people in Greece ride bicycles. Not so many, really. But uh, but then Turkey. How was your experience? Because you went through Turkey because you ended up in Iran. How was Turkey? What, what was the, the experience in riding a bicycle in Turkey? Oh, um, being called every five kilometers. Hey, chai, chai. Oh, wow. Offering you oh, tea. Yeah. yeah. But you can't join 12 chais in a day. <laughs> yeah. And um, Turkey is 
Turkish is some kind of hard language, so I only know about 10 words in Turkish language. I can't remember it very uh, very well. Um, then, But I think that's worldwide. They always ask you where you come from, where are you going to go to, um, what do you have, uh, what are you, and um, yeah. Turkey, I remember sleeping at gas stations. They're always safe. It's some kind of noisy, but they usually have internet access. And these men on the gas station, they're really, really nice. And sometimes they told me, ah, go and set up your tent there. It's under surveillance of my camera so I can have a look on you. And uh, good water. There are always springs on the roadside where you can refill your bottle. And um, Istanbul with lots of cats, and they're very nice to cats. And uh, I like to travel in Muslim countries, and Turkey is one of them. And the other thing was um, going into Iran, I knew I have to wear a scarf. So I looked a little bit at the Turkish women. Either you could see no hair at all, or they didn't wear a scarf. So like 50% did wear a scarf, 50% didn't wear one. So, okay. Along the Black Sea, I got the visa for Iran within one day. You go there, you talk to these people, you pay, and in the afternoon you go and pick up your visa. And um, really, what's funny too in Turkey, you pass a town, there are 12 shops, they only sell tea. (laughs) Tea, tea, Black tea, tea, tea. Next town, they only sell these um, jars to to brew some tea, but no tea. (laughs) In the next town, oh, well, they may sell some sort of herbs, but they don't exchange it. So it's really funny. They're always like hotspots of things you can buy. That's amazing. I love, I, I actually never thought, so you all this time you slept in a tent? Yeah, most of the times. Yeah. It's it's, it's cheap. And as soon as I close the zipper, I'm home. That's amazing. Because it always looks the same. You And then you went into Iran. Let's talk about Iran. Because my daughter traveled in Iran three years ago, four years ago for uh, six weeks, and she absolutely loved it. What's your take on Iran? Well. Iran is 11 out of 10. Wow. So friendly. You come into Iran and a lot of people say, welcome to Iran. It's so nice you visiting my country so you can see we're not these bad people like everybody says Mm -hmm. we are. And in Iran, they have a social system. It's called Taruf. Taruf. I think, except of Iranians, nobody's going to understand that. So one of the first days I went shopping and I wanted to pay. I asked how much and they said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, yeah, I want to pay. Oh, no, 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 no. And after asking for the third or fourth time, I left the shop without paying. And I felt some kind of. I don't like it. I want to pay what I need. Mm-hmm. And then somebody told me that this is the roof. And in Iran, don't accept if somebody invites you for 
food, stay overnight, you have to deny it for at least four or five times. And if they keep asking you, you can say yes. So ah. if you write an Iranian, oh, let's go and have a cup of coffee, they will say no. But they may be disappointed because you don't, don't keep ask asking. Mm -hmm. And it it makes themselves worthier if they give something, or it makes themselves really. I don't know really how it works, but one day I was uh, I met at the the Turkish Iranian border. Uh, he cycled from Amsterdam to Hong Kong back home. So we met and we were in Tehran in a park waiting till the Sephora embassy opens. And then a man came and said, oh, you're tourists. Yes. Um, then we talked like five minutes and then he said, do you have internet? No. And then he, he put a, a tiny box on the table and said, that's an internet hotspot. You can dial in. You can use it. And then, oh, oh, cool, we we dialed in. And then after a while, he said, are you still here in half an hour? Yes. Okay, I leave it. I'll be back in a half an hour. And then he came back with a car and has, he said, and we're going to drive you to the embassy. And then I'll wait there and then we will see. And then he drove us there. Then we went to a friend's home, which was a huge home in the middle of Tehran and we had some nice lunch there and then he drove us back to the bicycle that's Taruf, that's normal wow um, when I stopped to ask like uh, if there is a bicycle shop I need some new tires there were like 25 people pointing me where the next bicycle shop is running along my bike riding along my bike riding along the, along their cars to point me that I really arrive and it's sometimes it's um yeah it's overwhelming it's, it's really it's, it's, it's overwhelming yeah yeah wow I've heard this before and you're confirming exactly I really really need to go I still haven't been to Iran and it's definitely one place on my list that I want to visit yeah. because I asked the police car where the free campground is in this town and he just stared at me and pointed to the car. I thought like, oh, it's going to happen now. And then he drove me with the police car around town. Oh, there's the bakery and there's the mosque and there's the campground and there's fresh water and there you may have a shower. And then he drove me back. Yeah, that's the way it is. I only had one negative experience. As a cyclist, you see things coming slowly. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you passed it, it's far behind. So we were cycling in a group of five persons, two from Germany, my Hong Kong friend and another Swiss woman. And um, so we wanted to split up. The German guys wanted to go ahead and we wanted to camp, stay overnight somewhere. And um, all of a sudden, a car stopped and a very aggressive man came out of the car and some sort of policeman or person in a uniform. I couldn't talk so much Farsi at this time because that was the first week. And then he checked the passport on the two German guys and I only heard borro, borro. 
which is a very rude way to say, go away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he came over to us and asked us to leave too. We thought like, whoa, what's happening here? So they drove behind us for about 10 kilometers. Then we stopped and I tried to explain to that policeman or to that aggressive man that my friend from Switzerland, she was a little bit elderly and, um, well, had a little bit of overweight that she can't cycle anymore. Mm -hmm. So he stopped a towing truck and put all our belongings on the towing truck and we had to go into the car. And then they drove off. They picked up these two German guys with their bicycle and one of them refused. So they just threw his bicycle and stuff on that towing truck and him too. So he stood on the back of the towing truck holding to a, a rope. And then we drove maybe like 30 kilometers. And then they stopped again. And there were, I guess it were three policemen on motorcycle. And we had to go again to leave. But there was the only and first rain in Iran I experienced and I drove as the first of the group. I drove through that town. And because of the rain, there was a, a, um, a shop with carpets. He opened the, the door to his um, magazine and he waved us in. So all of us five cyclists went in. He closed the door again. The policemen were, were gone because, well, on the motorcycle. For of you by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we could stay overnight. He fed us and next morning we could leave again. So to see probably what was happened because there were some atomic power plants. Ah, okay. So you, we, you, were, you were not supposed to be there, but you didn't know. Yeah. yeah. Right. Let's go to this. What? Which one is the first Turkmenistan? Which? What's the, the sequence? Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, and then? Turkmenistan. Yeah. Um, Turkmenistan is a very, very, very close country. You only can get a five days visa mm -hmm. without the guide. But we left Iran in the morning at eight o'clock to be the first uh, when the border opened. And we could leave Turkmenistan at 12.30. There's a half an hour of, of change of the time. Time difference, yeah. But it took us four hours to go through that border. They checked, a doctor checked our health. Uh, they x-rayed everything. And then we had to pay again some fees. And then finally we could leave. And they didn't speak any English almost. And when we could leave, uh, a really beautiful lady came and said, in a perfect English, welcome to Turkmenistan. Do you carry guns? <laughs> <laughs> and I and my friend he said oh no we are cyclists and I said oh I just started to laugh because like four hours of examination and then this question yeah oh no and Turkmenistan had the baddest roads I ever experienced they're not roads they're just gravel roads and sandy roads and when you pass a bridge there, you usually have big, big holes, like two, three meters long and like 40 centimeters wide where you can look down in the water. And a lot of track 
uh, trucks drive alongside the road because they make a sandy beast um, to ride along. Yeah, but the Turkmen people are very shy, very friendly, very beautiful. And um, another thing is like maybe 80% of that ride was desert. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to tell you a story about the desert then. And um, the water is a problem. And once uh, a farmer gave me his precious water and I looked at it and I saw like 150 um, mosquito larvae moving in that water. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And you have to be at the border before two o'clock in the afternoon because there again is a time change and Uzbekistan only will uh, will close the border at four o'clock. So Turkmenistan, it was only 480 kilometers, but pretty strenuous because of the conditions. And um, you see a very nice bush in, in in the heat in the middle of the day and you think, ah, that's so nice to sit under the bush. But the leaves are, they are, they are, in a shape to the sun where where, where there's no shade. Ah, turned, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're turned like, yeah. oh. So there's not a lot of shade. But me mostly drove from like five o'clock in the morning till maybe 11. Uh-huh. And then from like four or five o'clock till midnight. So mm-hmm. we made only 120 kilometers a day. But uh, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but you didn't. You ha- your time was limited because of your five day visa, and that, so it was quite. You know, you you, ha- you were a bit of were in a hurry. You didn't have any time to waste. Yes. And then into Uzbekistan, into Uzbekistan, we just dropped past the border on the ground and slept a few hours because Turkmenistan was really strenuous. Yeah. Same procedure again: X ray, medical check, and then. Um, yeah, Uzbekistan has a lot of cotton in um, plants. That's the funny thing with Uzbekistan with the water. Sometimes you find a well alongside the road, but not very often. But you have to look out between five and six in the afternoon for people walking around with buckets. So they open their well for maybe one hour and then you can get free water. Or there may be a child with a monkey and a wagon, um, which carries the water to the people in the houses. The water is wonderful, it's good taste, but uh, that's a thing. And in fr- almost in front of every house is a bed because people, they sleep outside. It doesn't rain during summertime. And also peeping living on a field to look after their cows, apples and stuff. And they have their beds outside, they cook and live outside. And probably there are more bicycles than cars. And once I had, I found a handlebar, which was more comfortable than my old one. And I went into the shop and I saw that he also sells things um, for the bicycle. So I showed him my handlebar and then pointed to two ice cream and made the sign for swap. And he was smiling and I was smiling. <laughs> so, wow. That's how it worked. Amazing. And, so you bartered your handlebar for two, the new handlebar for two ice creams. 
well, the old handlebar for two new, two new right, ice cream. Right, yeah. he gave you <laughs> fantastic. Um, and now after then it's Kyrgyzstan, right? Yeah, Kyrgyzstan. It goes upwards on the high plateau behind the Himalayas, and uh, and Kyrgyzstan, there are cows, sheep, goats, horses everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, once, one man stopped us and invited us for chai. Again, chai. So, okay, it started to rain. We accepted. And then we were sitting in a shed uh, in his garden and had some chai. And then we showed pictures where we come from. And he showed us his wife and daughter. And about six o'clock in the evening, there was a moo in front of his door. And then he went and opened the door and his five cows came in. And he milked them and uh, he invited us for lunch and uh, to spend the night in his house. And in the morning he released, he released the cows. So I knew, oh, okay, that's how it works. It's just animals for everybody and they live everywhere. And the funny thing is I met a animal doctor and he had a goat from Switzerland. Wow. <laughs> he had a Heidi oh, how did he goat. from Switzerland? How did he bring it to uh, Kyrgyzstan? I don't know if it's the right word, a joy adventure. They have uh, like two societies which work together, uh, goats. But they exchange a joint venture. Yes, it's yes. the right. Yes. Yeah. Goats from Switzerland and goats from Kyrgyzstan. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Now, these, these, uh, then you went into China, right? Yeah, Kyrgyzstan. Um, most of the people, they ride horses or monkeys, donkeys. Not yeah. monkeys, donkeys. <laughs> donkeys, yeah. <laughs> there, there are not many cars around and um, it makes sense because they go uphill and downhill. It's like Switzerland. Um uh-huh. They they ride their with their horses so fast uphill, and once I saw two women and a small baby riding. Was like maybe seven months old. The baby riding in front, in the saddle, and um, yeah, that's the way it is. And in Kyrgyzstan, I was invited to sleep in a. I missed the word. It's white. It's like a house, but it's made out of animal skin. We asked. Um, some which chased goats, if we could, if they would know where we could set up the tent, and they said, uh, "Join us." So we were invited in that yurt. So we wanted to set up our tents, and they said, "No, no, 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 chai, chai." <laughs> okay, chai. Then we went outside again for our tents and said, and made the sign for food. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you very much. And we were invited. So there were only four plates, one for the chief of the yurt and for his mother and for Joe and me. And when my plate was empty, I just gave somebody just gave me a handful of the food from the big tray, puff in my <laughs> in my uh, plate, and I was forced to eat more. Uh-huh. And again, we wanted to get outside for the tent, and but they 
Meantime, they rolled out mat and made the sign, you sleep here and you sleep there. So we slept with about 12 persons in that yurt. It was um, amazing. very early. Experiences, crazy stuff. Yeah. You, and you, then did, I, you, did you write a book? You should write a book about no. this. No, no, no. Okay. I I wrote the book mean doing home sitting, and I paid about five thousand euros for it, and uh, they sold okay. the book. They got the money. No, no okay, way. I agree. There's okay. other ways. There's other ways, but this is definitely a good way. This put. I mean, I I'm fascinated. We are time is passing very quickly, so we have to make it a little bit. Uh, because I also want to talk about China for a moment. Yeah, I was cycling because everybody cycles in China, right? Not really. Oh, most are on um, motorcycle, but they all run with electricity. They're far off us. Okay. And China, oh, it's a vast country sometimes, and sometimes the really big mega cities, which uh, you cycle from the periphery to the center for 30 kilometers. So it's almost 60 kilometers wide. And Oh, they're so big. Um, but Chinese are really friendly. They're shy. They sometimes you have, um, once I had, there was a sign on the road saying, don't use your horn, they're wild elephants. And I thought, I'm not going to sleep in the bush tonight. No. <laughs> and then I had to go and buy three times something in the shop until he let me sleep uh, in his child's uh, room. Because I always pointed to my trail and said, um, chompong, chompong, tent, tent, and ah. uh, sign for where, where could I set up my yeah. tent? And he said, mayo, mayo, no, no, no. So after the the third time I was in his shop, he came and said, took me by the hand and pointed to a, a sh uh, some sort of shed where his child uses to play. So I could spend the night there. <laughs> oh, my God. So um, that's another thing that I wanted to ask you. How did you communicate? Because you went through so many countries with so many different languages and mo saying that in many of those places, people didn't speak English. Yeah. Well, I'm fluent in five languages and I pick up languages very easily. So uh, in like when I entered Iran, I already knew like 15 most important words in Iran. And by leaving the Iran after two months, I spoke maybe like 80 words in Iran, in, in, in Farsi. Mm -hmm. Then I learned some words in Turkmen language, but they sometimes answered me in Russian, so I picked up Russian too a bit. Same in Uzbekistan, Kurdistan. So I don't know. I just pick it up easily. Mm -hmm. And um, Chinese is hard too because they have four ways of pronunciation of a word. So if you say "gen," it means shop, and if you say "gen." It means sky. And I know a What's few signs. Thing? Yeah, I know a few uh, signs. You have to know a few signs like the stop sign or the sign for to find the women's toilet, not mm -hmm. to enter the men's toilet. And um, yeah, like, but there's some really difficult words like in Chinese, Switzerland is I took me like 
a week to pick up that word. Mm. But um, it doesn't sound yeah. like Switzerland at all. But do you agree with me? I always say that I think, do you agree with me that if you want to communicate, if you want to understand each other, you can, whether it's by sign language, with a smile, a yeah. few words. And I think as a traveler, you should always make an effort to know a few words and not expect those people to know yours. Yeah. Once I had in the operating theater uh, a parent from Tibet, which were raised in China. They couldn't speak any English or German. And um, after to see that in our hospital, mommy can keep her baby on her chest during the whole operation. And the baby had some, it's not fluid. It's like, it looks a little bit like cheese from, from the uterus in its eye. And then the husband pointed on that and and said ah and i said may you want to no problem and then he said Shishin. thank you and i said you're welcome and then he was like oh she speaks chinese <laughs> <laughs> and that just makes all the difference doesn't it yeah in in so many situations i think it's so important to make an effort and to to make it a point to understand each other in this world. I think yeah. that's and I think the body language worldwide, there are a few chests which really are global, except of Thailand. They don't read body language. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. It doesn't work in Thailand. But yeah, on on the rest of the world, that's okay. So I um, want to ask you, because I know you, you after China, you went to just a, a quick one about Thailand. How was, how was uh, cycling in Thailand? And then you flew home from there. Yeah. Well, Laos was more beautiful. There is, uh, in the north of Laos, there is not a lot of uh, tourism. Mm -hmm. And once I slept in a really, really small town, about five houses, and I kept playing with the children and they wrote my name in their language. I wrote their name in my language. And then I pointed to the hose because around five, six o'clock in the evening, people go and have their daily wash on a hose, usually at the entrance or somewhere in the town, everybody naked. And um, they they shook their head and pointed to another way. So they let me down to a to a creek and a woman sat in the creek and did her washing of the clothes. So I thought like, hmm, how oh, I'm going to undress. Hmm. Am I going to be naked or not? <laughs> and all the children had their flashlights pointing at me. And so, okay, I decided to keep my bra on uh -huh. and, my, and my pants. And then the woman shook their head and made the sign of taking away the clothes. And then... Okay, I went naked and then um, she gave me, she handed me her soap and thank you very much. And I gave it back and then she handed me her toothbrush and I shook my head. <laughs> and the kids, they were giggling all the time. And then all of a sudden she shouted at the ch children and then all the flashlights went out except of one. And that was very discreetly pointing to a little bit the edge. Okay. And then one of the children went to get fresh water to rinse the mouth. And uh, yeah, that's how I had my bath there. Fascinating, fascinating. So many and experiences. In Laos, in the middle of Laos, there again, sandwich. Oh, 
European food. Because in, in China, it was always a bit hard um, to get food. Mm -hmm. they, they have, I, I usually, I always got whatever I could eat except of meat. And um, sometimes they invited me in the kitchen. Then I said, do it, yes. Mayo, no. And I put it on the food and then I got a surprise. And in a Chinese restaurant, in the in the not in a big city, you get a meal for like one, two euro. Mm -hmm. And because I had a, a very bad diarrhea, which I picked up in Iran, which no medication worked, but rice. I remembered I can't go to the loo when I have rice. So mm -hmm. I went in China every day, Nifan rice. Mm -hmm. No problem anymore with diarrhea, except if I didn't get rice. Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> fantastic. Listen, we have to end it soon. What yeah. what's next, Barbara? What 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 are you planning to do? Are you done with traveling? Are you still cycling? Do you have a dream? What would you like to do? Well, my plan when I came back was working for five, six years, 100% or 10 years, 50. Then I decided uh, five years, 100% and do the Panamericana from Alaska to Patagonia. But I'm grandma of four children now, grandchildren, and uh, that's a new challenge. And my kids, they want me to be close to their children. And so I just keep on living. I don't care at all. I would like to go to the Scandinavian countries, the Finnmark, mm -hmm. where uh, Norway and Finland join, to do that in the summertime with a lot of mosquitoes, I'm sure. <laughs> and, um, well, I don't know. Life will surprise me. I have no plans, actually. I love um, that. I love that. And I know from what I heard and from what I understood since we've been speaking, you are going to do something crazy again because you just can't help it. That is your nature. Yeah, because when my children were two and a half and four and a half years old, um, I wanted to spend the whole year with them. So I took all the, my retiring money from Switzerland, which were yeah, like 20,000 uh, US dollars. And I flew over to the United States with a one-way ticket and I traveled, I bought a motorhome and I traveled for one year between Florida and Alaska to and fro. And, um, well, but I never know. You don't. We'll stay in touch and maybe in three, four years we'll do another episode because there will be new stories to tell. Yeah. So Barbara Sheridan Life, thank you so much for spending time with me and being on most memorable journeys today. Who you said? De rien. De nada. Ich gern You're welcome. Beautiful. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes. <laughs>